If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. And welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine. And I'm Rob Attar, deputy editor. And I'm Charlotte Hodgman, the section editor. So this is our April 2011 podcast. Coming up this month, we have... In 1940-41, Britain was a great, great power. In some respects, the largest producer of arms in the world. That was David Edgerton on Britain's War Machine. Little physical things about people's bodies, um, their clothes... They can really reveal a lot about a mental world. That was Lucy Worsley on historical hair and politics. Mining companies claimed that it's better to be owned by a British mining company than by a local master. And that was Chris Evans on slavery after abolition. monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history title. We're grateful to you for listening to our podcast, but we'd like to know a little more about what you want from it and how we can make it better. To that end, we've got a survey running on our website, which you'll find at www.historyextra.com forward slash survey. We'd really appreciate your thoughts if you have time to complete the survey and as a little incentive, we have one Apple iPad, black, 16 gig, Wi-Fi only, to give away. The name of the person who gets the iPad will be drawn at random from the details of everyone who completes the survey, and to be included in the draw, you need to have done it by the 1st of May 2011. You'll find full terms and conditions on the survey site, which once more is www.historyextra.com forward slash survey. Our first interview this month is with Professor David Edgerton of Imperial College London. His new book, Britain's War Machine, challenges the popular view that the country was a defiant underdog in the Second World War. As he explained to me, Britain's global network and advanced industrial economy made it more than a match for Nazi Germany. In the Second World War, Britain is often perceived to be a plucky underdog battling against the odds. Would you say that's an accurate picture? I don't think so. I think Britain was in fact a great power with enormous economic resources, enormous technological and scientific resources as well. Indeed, so strong was it that it felt itself to be capable of winning against Nazi Germany, not only in alliance with France in 1939 into early 1940, but even after the fall of France in June 1940. The Churchill government, the British people thought that Britain, with the help from the rest of the world, would be able to defeat Nazi Germany essentially on its own. So what advantages did Britain have against Germany, for example? One of the most important advantages was something that we now think was a weakness, and that was its dependence on overseas supply. Britain imported a huge proportion of its food. It imported a huge proportion of its oil. It imported lots and lots of raw materials. Now, we might think that's a weakness because, of course, all this could be cut off 
by German U-boats or by other means. But in fact, Britain imported all these things because it was much cheaper for Britain to get them from abroad than to get them from internal sources. So it was much more efficient for Britain to import food than to grow it itself. It was much more efficient for it to import a refined petrol and aviation spirit than to try and make it from coal, as the Germans had to do. It was much cheaper to import raw materials from where they were easily extracted than to extract ores that were not so rich in Britain, for example. Again, something that the Germans had to do. So Britain's dependence on world trade, and well, perhaps dependence is not the wrong word, Britain's integration into a global economy was a source of huge strength, even perhaps in some ways, particularly in wartime. So that owes a lot to the empire and the legacy of empire. Empire is is part of the story, but um, there's been a very strong tendency right through the 20th century and still very evident uh, today to rather overemphasize the importance of empire for Britain. Certainly Britain had the greatest empire the world had ever seen, and it was economically significant. But in many respects, empire was less important economically than, than we might imagine. For example, Britain's trade with Scandinavia was significantly greater, this is before the war, than uh, the trade with India. Uh, In fact, Britain's extra-European trade was mainly with the United States, with the white dominions, and with the river plate with Argentina and Uruguay, essentially rich countries. What happened, in fact, was that Britain lost to the German army very important sources of raw materials in northern and indeed southern Europe and North Africa and had to replace those sources of timber, of iron ore, with resources from elsewhere. Uh, Food actually provides a very interesting story. We tend to forget that Danish bacon is not a novelty. British consumers ate gigantic quantities of Danish bacon in, in the 1930s and gigantic quantities of Dutch eggs as well. Of course, with the fall of these countries in 1940, that supply had to be made up from elsewhere. And in fact, the bacon and and dried eggs now came from the United States and Canada in very considerable quantities. So um, what we have is a story of of Britain continuing to trade during the war, but the trade, a significant part of that trade, shifted away from Europe and towards the United States. The trade of the Southern Hemisphere essentially stayed much the same during the whole of the war. For example, imports of meat into Britain actually increased during the war. Imports of cheese also increased during the war. This is, I think, rather surprising. But in fact, it made complete economic and uh, shipping sense, if I can put it that way. Before the war, Britain had imported large quantities of feeding stuffs for animals. They were fed not on British grass, but on imported maize. Now, that's not a very efficient use of, uh, of shipping resources. So during the war, animal feeding stuffs imports were cut right back, and uh, domestic herds with the exception of dairy cattle, were uh, therefore also cut back, and they were at least partially made up with increased imports of meat and cheese in particular. So we have this idea of Britain being part of this big global network of trade. Does that therefore mean that the Battle of the Atlantic was absolutely crucial to the Second World War? It was crucial. The ability to bring ships in was really much more important than we imagine. It's not just a question of of maintaining a lifeline, but it's a question really of maintaining a massively warfare-oriented society during the war. Uh, You could import huge quantities of munitions, you could import huge quantities of food, and therefore mobilise your nation much more than you otherwise could. So yes, the Battle of the Atlantic was hugely important, but it's actually not just a battle of the Atlantic that's significant here. It's British command of the seas of the world that's important. The German Navy, the Merchant Navy, the Italian Merchant Navy, were essentially driven from the seas. The Japanese Merchant Navy was driven from the Pacific by the Americans. And we think of the Battle of the Atlantic, that's the 
place where there were many sinkings, especially in the early part of the war. In the rest of the, the seas of the world, the British merchant marine was pretty free to move right through the war. If Britain was such a powerful country, then we have this notion perhaps it was in quite a perilous position after the fall of France, before the Soviet Union and America had entered the war. But would you say that that's not actually true? Was Britain still in a strong position at that point? The image of Britain in peril comes from an overstating of the view that Britain was alone and that alone implied weakness. In fact, Britain was not alone in, in two senses. First, Britain was part of a great empire. And when actually people spoke about Britain being alone, they meant the British Empire being alone. But even so, the reality is that Britain had very important allies from, uh, from 1939, and indeed had more allies of 1940 onwards, and did believe it would have the power to win. And if you look at things like aircraft production in 1940, Britain was actually ahead of Germany in that field. In tank production, it was catching up very fast with Germany in 1941 will be outproducing the Germans. So there are very good grounds for believing that just on the military production side, Britain could do well and was very strong. And the British elites, furthermore, recognized that the German economy was thoroughly constrained by its um, inability to trade with the rest of the world and were rather too optimistic in thinking that the German economy would collapse. One expression of British confidence is the famous phrase spoken by Churchill in February 1941 when he, speaking to the American people, said, give us the tools and we will finish the job. seems a bit odd that uh, somebody should say that from our uh, current perspective on the war, but at the time it was not odd at all. Britain did believe it could finish the job with a little bit of additional help uh, from the United States. And this is, of course, well before the Soviet Union was in the war and, of course, well before the United States was in the war and before any expectation that it would be in the war. You said earlier that before 1941 Britain already had some important allies. Who were those allies? Well, apart from the, the empire, they didn't have really important allies in the sense that they weren't able to supply major forces to help Britain. But uh, we shouldn't forget that uh, Belgium had become a, a British ally and the Belgian colonies were now effectively part of the British war effort. Similarly, the Dutch became allies in 1940 and their empire was essentially at the disposal of the British empire. The Czechs and, and so on also, and the Poles were also formerly allies. Of course, they couldn't do, do very much, but we mustn't forget that there were Czech and Polish pilots, for example, in, in the Royal Air Force, indeed, in the Battle of Britain. So Britain was not alone, even militarily, although it did make by far the most important contribution in 1940 and early 1941. And this is important propagandistically, because the idea that, that Britain was fighting with governments in exile against um, terrible power that had taken over and destroyed Europe was a very important propaganda tool. This wasn't Britain against Europe. This was Britain with Europe against the Nazis. If Britain really was so powerful, how come it was seemingly powerless to prevent Nazi Germany taking over virtually all of continental Europe? Yes, it was indeed powerless to do that. One very important reason it was powerless to do that was that Britain's strength was not, um, of course, in the army. The British army was uh, relatively small. The British had invested in an extremely powerful navy and extremely powerful air force, and they couldn't really change the course of events in Europe. But what really happened in Europe was the defeat of the French army. That was a critical development on the continent of Europe. So why couldn't Britain do more? Well, one reason was that it had overestimated the capacity of the air force to be a decisive force in modern war. The Royal Air Force wasn't able to bring Germany to its knees, just as the Luftwaffe was not able to bring Britain to its knees in the Battle of Britain and in the Blitz that followed it. In that case, why do we have this picture that I talked about earlier of Britain being a plucky underdog, if that's not actually true? 
It's a very curious thing, isn't it, that a country that prided itself on being a great industrial center, a great empire, extremely powerful, extremely competent, should have produced this image of itself as being uh, weak. Well, where does it come from? Well, in part, it comes from 1940 itself, where some particular propagandists pushed an image of British military weakness in the, in the 1930s and, and therefore in 1940. The guilty men thesis. This is a stick with which to beat the men of Munich. And then Churchill himself, when he suffered major defeats in 1942, argued that Britain had been weak in 1940, and this is why the defeat had taken place. And that picture has remained uh, extremely um, influential and has been added to by images created by historians of a much more general British weakness, indeed a very powerful British decline from the late 19th century right through to the present. So all those things together created an image in the historical literature of a, a weak, militarily weak, pacifist Britain that was also economically and industrially weak. And the reality was that Britain had the richest large economy uh, in Europe, one which had very particular strengths and indeed one which supported uh, particularly uh, technologically oriented um, armed services. In fact, one possible explanation of this defeat is the overcommitment to modern armed services and an undercommitment to traditional infantry, to the army as opposed to the air force and the navy. With all this in mind, uh, do you think that Britain's victory in the Second World War is perhaps a lesser achievement that we're led to believe nowadays? Well, actually, I think Britain doesn't really celebrate victory in the Second World War. It rather celebrates muddling through at the beginning of the war. And really, it's extraordinary the relative attention we give to events in 1939, especially 1940, as compared to 1945 and even 1944. So we've in a way lost the sense that Britain was a victor in the Second World War. Had this uh, sense that it had been overshadowed by other powers, and that the war contributed a great deal to Britain's relative decline. So I think, in fact, uh, Britain should remember that it was on the winning side, that it contributed a great deal to that victory and came out of the war relatively unscathed. At the same time, I think we also need to remember that there was a, a very powerful relative decline. That in 1940-41, Britain was a great, great power, in some respects the largest producer of arms in the, in the world. Its relative power was quite extraordinary. By 1945, it was clearly well behind the United States and the Soviet Union, and, and actually, relatively speaking, to some extent, even Germany as well. So there was a, a very, very powerful decline. But we mustn't confuse the two periods. And this is exactly what um, David Cameron did when he said that in 1940, Britain had been a junior partner to the United States. Completely untrue of 1940, but true of 1945. But the world changed radically between those two dates. If Britain was a junior partner to anybody in 1940, it was to France, not the United States. And yet that idea that the Americans saved us in 1940 has become deeply, deeply ingrained. It's quite, quite wrong. But it's interesting that you say that by the end of the war, Britain clearly was no longer in first place in the world. All the other powers that had superseded it had been involved in the war. So why did Britain decline so much relative to them? Well, it declined relatively. Its economy expanded, its arms production um, expanded, the size of its arms forces expanded, the capacity of its arms forces expanded even more. So it's not, it's not decline, it's relative decline. And the main reason for the relative decline is the extraordinary growth in the power 
of the United States in particular, but also the Soviet Union. The United States in 1940 had massive unemployment, massive underutilization of its uh, natural resources. It was able to gear its economy up using unused capacity in a way the British economy or indeed the German economy simply could not. So the mobilization of the United States is in part a measure of American failure uh, in the late 1930s rather than its success. We have to remember that the United States was much bigger in terms of population and economic resources than Britain. That's a basic reality that even the most efficient British organisation couldn't overcome. And just finally, a hypothetical question. If, let's say, Russia had never come into the war in America, do you think that Britain on its own could have defeated Nazi Germany? I think that if things had gone differently it could possibly have defeated Nazi Germany with the Soviet Union. That's to say that the British Empire had huge resources. It could mobilize an army almost as large as the Red Army was to become. In the event, it wasn't able to do that in order to fight Nazi Germany because it had to fight the Japanese as well. And it had to fight the Japanese very intensively indeed. The United States had to help Britain out after the Japanese entered the war. I don't think it need have helped as much as it did if Japan hadn't entered the war. So that's rather convoluted, but I think we've got to imagine the possibility that Britain could indeed have won the war against Nazi Germany with the Soviet Union and without the United States. And indeed, this was the expectation of British leaders into uh, December 1941. If they didn't believe that, I think they wouldn't have carried on fighting. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like a gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. eBay gets it, so look for the blue checkmark next to that thing you love, and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. That was David Edgerton, and his book I mentioned, Britain's War Machine, is published by Alan Lane. You can also read a feature by him in our April issue. From towering Georgian wigs to the itchy, matted heads of 12th-century hermits... Britons have long made statements about themselves through their changing hairstyles. This month, as part of a new BBC Four series exploring the evolution of the home, Lucy Worsley, chief curator of the historic royal palaces, explores how hairstyles have reflected wider social and political changes over the past 800 years. Your feature on the politics of hair in April's edition of the magazine takes a look at how hairstyles have reflected social changes over the past 800 years. Could you perhaps give us a few examples of this? Sure. Um, now, this, this feature is a little bit light-hearted, I admit, and yet there's a serious 
point behind it. What I want to do is draw attention to the fact that the little things, tiny little things about the way people have treated, have thought about, have looked after their bodies can collectively add up to a way of charting enormous, big, important changes in society. So although it's about hair, trivial thing, <laughs> each of the examples I've selected, I think, illustrate a bigger, wider, more important point. I've picked out the hair of Henry Gates, for example, um, because he had particularly political hair. Kings and queens always do. A lot of people's eyes are upon them. And in Henry VIII's own hair, you can chart the relationship between England and France at certain points, at least. Um, he, he, he has periods when he has a great, strong personal alliance with Francis I of France, for example. Francis um, injures his head, jousting, and Henry VIII says, well, you know, my brother king is ill. I, too, will shave off all of my hair just to see his hat done. He expresses solidarity through the haircut. And then at another point, um, the two kings make this vow. They promise that they won't shave until they're once again in each other's presence. This is the, the idea. They're going to grow a beard as a symbol of their hope, their longing to be once again together. But Catherine of Aragon, Henry's wife at this point, she doesn't want the alliance with France. She's from Spain. She's not king on the French at all. And she manages to persuade Henry VIII to shave his beard off. She said it tickles. Now, this is potentially going to be a grave diplomatic incident because Henry has clearly broken his vow not to shave. What's going to happen? It could have all gone very wrong. But luckily, Francis I's mother, she put things right because she said it doesn't actually matter that Henry VIII has accidentally shaved his beard off because, and this is the quotation, the love that the two kings bore each other was not in the beards, it was in the heart. And what period do you think saw the biggest statements in hair? Well, the biggest hair is definitely in the late 18th century. And in the 18th century, you start to get industrialization, a consumer revolution. People begin to buy things for their homes, for their bodies. Um, China takes off, soft furnishings take off, and hair takes off too. People begin to wear bigger and bigger wigs because now they have um, the power, the money to express who they are through their possessions in a new way. This is happening lower down in society as well. And as the 18th century goes on, dresses get wider and wider and wider. Those court mantuas are spread out over ever wider hoops, and hair goes up and up and up in these bigger and bigger wigs until you get the French Revolution. And this is kind of the end of the, the, the high times for people at the top of society because they've, they've pushed it too far. And all the revolutionaries in France uh, stop wearing wigs and big hair, and they go about with very short hair, just like the roundheads in the 17th century. Revolutionaries always, it seems, have really short hair. And um, all the aristocrats in France lost their heads. There's no more work for all their hairdressers. So their hairdressers come over to England. And I love the fact that the hairdressers are viewed with immense suspicion by a lot of the conservative people in England. They're thinking, hmm, are these, are these revolutionaries? What is that man doing in my wife's bedroom whispering into her ear? Is he planting seeds of dissent? What's going on? So there becomes a, uh, there's a reaction in England, too, against big, white, powdery hair. And the government get in on the act as well. They start to put a tax on hair powder. And that's why, by the time you get into the 19th century, you don't see these inflammatory, fancy, enormous, conspicuous consumption hairstyles anymore. Everything's a lot smoother and sleeker and more simple. 
Okay. And what or who were the main influences on changing hairstyles? Ah, well, it's a sort of, um, it's a cauldron of different things, isn't it? You get the influences of different countries. You get uh, particular little fashions that spring up in, in the town and then spread to the countryside. There was a great letter I wrote from a Georgian, a Georgian lady who was sending a bonnet to her country cousin, and the letter said, don't be frightened by this bonnet. It will look ridiculous to you, but it's what everybody in town is wearing at the moment. And the court is a big source of influence. So in the 18th century, its influence is starting to fall away a bit. The court fashion is becoming less the pace better. Court fashion gets sort of fossilized, and it's people out in the town um, who, are, who are setting the pace a bit more. And was religion reflected through hair? I mean, you mentioned the roundheads already. What does religion think of hair? Well, it has different views at different times. Um, there's a very positive image of spirituality in the 12th century, which is the, the hairy hermit. He's greasy, his hair is long, it's matted, his body itches, but this is a good thing because it's a sort of um, self-flagellation. He's enduring all of those things as a penance. So there's a strain of finding um, virtue in suffering, isn't there, in, in, in some parts of um, Christianity. And then later on in the 17th century, we also find Puritans, on the other hand, being against long hair. But they, that's because on, they think it's vain. They think it's a sin to be sort of effeminate and extravagant in your hairstyles. And the Puritan William Print, who is just brilliant because he's always banging on um, with incredible vigour against the, the, the terrible habits of the courtiers and the cavaliers. And he denounces in the 1630s the fashion for long curling cavalier hair as, get this, unlawful, effeminate, vainglorious, evil, odious, immodest, indecent, lascivious, wanton, dissolute and whorish. <laughs> and he says it's ungodly as well. So there's, in, in the feature that's been reproduced, this brilliant little um, caricature which shows, it shows literally the cavaliers and the roundheads. It was a satirical um, cartoon showing a dog side. And on the left-hand side of it, you've got all the cavalier gentlemen and their dog. And on the right-hand side of it, you've got the roundhead gentlemen with their dog. And the two dogs are obviously about to have a go at each other. So it's just an allegory for the Civil War. The cavaliers have got long curly hair, and so has their dog. And the roundheads have got short basin cuts, and so does their roundhead dog too. <laughs> and who, who were the big names in hair over the past 800 years? Who were sort of the makers and breakers of fashion in hair? Ooh, that's a good question. I would definitely pick out Charles II because of his introducing the wig. After his exile on the continent during the, during the Commonwealth, he got into the French habit of, of wearing wigs. Uh, so when he came back to London at the Restoration, wigs, uh, with, along with rouge and um, French sources and flamboyant dress, all became the fashions in Restoration London. And one amusing side effect of this was a new form of criminal, because everybody was wearing these expensive wigs on their heads. Um, the, these new types of pickpockets developed who, who were wig stealers, and they'd work in teams of two. What would happen is that um, one of them would, would snatch the wig off the head, and then the other one would go, hey, he took your wig, and he would chase after him. And you'd think he was a good Samaritan, but he wasn't. He was in league with the, with the wig snatcher. And you also hear these little dogs being trained to leap up and snatch wigs off people's heads as well. <laughs> um, and did facial hair for men follow similar trends? 
Well, there's one trend which I just think is fascinating that's to do with men's facial hair. And this comes from Piers Brendan, the historian of the, the, the British Empire. And um, he says that the, the rise and the fall of the empire is accompanied by the rise and fall of the moustache. Which sounds ridiculous, and yet it's kind of true as well. <laughs> when you think of Victorian civil servants sent off to the govern, govern a remote part of, of Africa uh, with their huge handlebar moustaches, maybe the moustache was intended to disguise any possible wibble of the upper lip, who knows? But anyway, you do, you do associate it with the, the high point of the Victorian self-confidence, the world is pink. Um, British Empire. But then he notices, with the decline of empire, you get the decline of the moustache as well. And um, Piers Brendan identifies the nadir in the Suez crisis of 1956, when Anthony Eden, um, the Prime Minister, makes this rather unconvincing television broadcast to try to resolve the crisis. And when he appears on the camera, his moustache is just invisible. It's not there at all. So in what was the ultimate piece of emasculation, he had it touched up with his wife's mascara to make it a little bit more visible. So that's the end of the empire and the end of the moustaches as well. OK, I suppose in more recent history, um, we had the bob um, in the 1920s, which was a symbol of liberation. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, it's well, it, I was saying earlier that short hair equals emancipation, revolutionary views, and it, it's pretty clear that the bob liberates women very physically from a whole lot of work of getting getting their hair ready and organized and and so on and um, it was a very visible sign that women were becoming emancipated were, were liberated um had the vote and that sort of thing so that's just perhaps the most obvious example from the whole of history i suppose singled hair equals equals freedom I think that more and more as I go on as a historian, I've, I'm more and more interested in the way that little physical things about people's bodies, um, their clothes, the things that they had in their houses, they can really reveal a lot about a mental world. And some historians will say, oh, well, that's trivial. Why are you looking at the history of the teacup? Actually, the teacup's history can, if you look at it closely, reveal an awful lot about the rise of consumerism, for example. Coming on to that, um, you've recently been filming a new series for BBC Four called If Walls Could Talk, An Intimate History of the Home. What have you learnt from that? I think the main thing that I've learnt is that the little stuff matters. The devil is in the detail. And it's not just a case of kings and queens and constitutional events and politics. Um, or If Walls Could Talk, I had a lot of fun actually trying things out from the history of the home. And it was quite interesting to learn that often technology, for example, followed rather than led social change. That was Lucy Worsley on Hair Throughout History. You can read more on the topic in the April edition of the magazine. Lucy also presents the BBC Four series If Walls Could Talk, An Intimate History of the Home, which is scheduled to air later this month. Our final interview this month is with Professor Chris Evans of the University of Glamorgan. He has been researching the surprising continuing story of Atlantic slavery after Britain had formally abolished it. And he's written a feature on the subject for the April issue of BBC History magazine. 
so we're going to talk about Britain's slaves in Latin America. Now, it's sort of, sort of common knowledge that the slave trade ended in 1807 in Britain when Parliament abolished it and that slavery itself was abolished in the 1830s. But that's not the end of the story, is it? As you've described in the feature that you've written for BBC History magazine this month. No, by no means is it in the end, because what happens in the age of abolitionism in the 1830s is that just as the British slave trade is being closed down, British enterprise is going global. There's a lot of investment in Latin America. Mining companies in particular enjoy a huge amount of success, attract a lot of investment. And a lot of these mining companies are setting up in areas of the world in which slavery is still tolerated, mainly in Brazil and in Cuba. Gold mining in Brazil, copper mining in Cuba. And so the British interest that was established there, they naturally took to using slaves because that was what was normal in those countries at the time. Oh, indeed. In somewhere like Cuba in the 1830s, the use of slave labour was virtually a kind of reflex. It's what you did. There is very little in the way of a free labour market. Therefore, if you're setting up a business, it's just automatic that you use slaves. What happens is that Cuba and Brazil are both importing tens of thousands of slaves on an annual basis at, at this period and they're very widely used. I mean we think of them being used in sugar plantations which of course is the case in coffee production but mining is also an area of slave labour exploitation. And these slaves were coming from Africa presumably? Yeah these are freshly imported Africans. But at the time Britain had abolished the slave trade and its navy was policing the seas to stop this trade. The Royal Navy was indeed patrolling the high seas to try and intercept illegal slave traders, but the fact of the matter is is that the price of slaves, the price that slaves could command in somewhere like Cuba or in Brazil, was so high there was a huge incentive for illegal slavers to be active. So despite the efforts of the Royal Navy, lots and lots of slaves are getting through. So would it have been possible for these British businesses that had set up mining in Cuba and Brazil to carry out their operations without using slaves? Or was it that the society as such, as you said, it was a slave-holding labour society? They wouldn't have been able to do it any other way. Well, that was the claim that the mining companies made. They said, well, it's simply no market for free labour. There is no free labour in a lot of the areas where we're operating. Therefore, it's not our choice to use slave labour. We're just responding to what are our local conditions. Our hands are tied. So when did this matter come to the attention of people in Britain? When did it become widely known that even after the legislation had been passed abolishing the slave trade and slavery that it was still going on under the British aegis? Right at the very end of the 1830s, start of the 1840s, the major abolitionist organisation in Britain, the British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society, starts to become aware that this is going on. It becomes aware partly through visitors to Cuba and Brazil who report back on what they saw and partly I think through renegade members of the mining companies themselves who have sometimes left the company under a cloud or so it was claimed by the companies themselves and confessed or owned up to their participation in the slave trade. So presumably by the end of the 1830s with all that's gone before in the last 30 odd years the British public was anti-slavery it was against the concept. 
Very much against the concept. This is becoming the, the conventional wisdom in Britain at the time, that we are a modern nation, we're a liberal constitutional nation, and because of that we are necessarily anti-slavery. Slavery is incompatible with modernity, and Britain is nothing if not modern in the early Victorian period. Now, that was the kind of attitude that most abolitionists had, but... It raises problems when they start to see slaves being used by mining companies because these mining companies are very, very modern themselves. They're not backward, they're not archaic in any sense. They're using the very latest technology in mining technique and they are organisationally innovative. These are big joint stock companies who have their offices in the City of London and who raise tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds in share capital. So these are not backward organisations. Are ultra modern entities. So the anti-slavery organisations they started a campaign against this. How did these ultra modern mining operations defend themselves? They lobbied very hard, and they were able to lobby hard and effectively because, of course, the people at the head of these companies were big figures in the city of London. Some of them were governors of the Bank of England. We were talking about the financial capitalist pinnacle of British society. These are well-connected individuals. They lobby hard with MPs, with the government, and they are able to make the claim that, well, look, we have committed no crime. It's not illegal in Brazil to own slaves. It's not illegal in Cuba, this is something we've been forced into, and what the abolitionists now want is to penalise us, to criminalise acts we've done which have broken no law in the places where we operate. And did that legal argument stand up to scrutiny? Well, a big debate ensues in the early 1840s because the abolitionists, the British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society, sponsor an act of parliament which is going to make it illegal for Britons to own slaves anywhere, regardless of the jurisdiction. It doesn't matter whether you're in a British territory or the territory of a foreign power. You may not, as a British subject, own slaves. That's the ambition of the abolitionists. This is the kind of final frontier, if you like, of British anti-slavery. There's nowhere where you can own slaves. In practice, what happens is that the mining companies manage to resist that and get exemptions for themselves. They're not required to give up the slaves they already have, ones they've purchased, and as they've said, we've purchased legally. So they're able to hang on to the slaves that they do own. And they also managed to negotiate a nice little loophole in the Act of Parliament that is eventually passed in 1843 that allows them, if not to own slaves themselves, but to be able to hire slaves from other slave owners. So the mining companies, instead of buying new slaves, they will rent slaves from an existing owner. The rent goes to the owner and the slaves themselves, of course, are just left with their meagre rations to get on with. So the outcome was basically a fudge then? It was not so much a fudge, I think more a victory for the mining companies because that ability, the ability to hire slaves in means that they can continue to operate as slave-owning slave companies or slave-using companies rather with pretty much impunity. If you look at what some of the major companies do, they really move wholesale into hiring slave labour. 
one of the biggest and most successful companies in Brazil, the St. John del Rey Company, a gold mining organisation. On the eve of this 1843 Act, it mainly uses its own slaves, slaves it owns itself. It hires in a few, but no more than about 60. If you look at the situation with the St. John del Rey Company five years after the Act of 1843, it uses over 700 hired-in slaves, so it's undergone a massive expansion, extended its operations, and has continued to use slave labour to do so. Were people in Britain unaware that this loophole existed after 1843, or had they just sort of given up interest in the subject and thought that it had all been resolved? I think the latter. I think what goes on the statute book appears to many people to resolve the issue satisfactorily. The people who continue to be concerned about the use of slave labour in Latin American mines are mainly people who are hardcore abolitionists anyway. But their grip on the political culture is slipping in the 1840s, in the 1850s, as for most members of the British public, the issue of slavery appears to be one that's been settled. How important were the products that were coming out of these British interests in Brazil and Cuba that were produced by slaves? It varies what you're talking about. In Brazil, what's being mined is gold. And of course, gold is gold. It continues to be the bullion, precious metal is perpetually valuable. And from that point of view, there was a continuing desire to mine gold all the way down to the 20th century. The most successful British company, as I mentioned earlier, the St. John del Rey, still exists in a form in Brazil as a big industrial conglomerate. But gold mining was at the heart of that. The Cuban situation is rather different. What was being mined in El Cobre in Cuba, which is near Guantanamo Bay, is copper ore and What kicks off in El Cobre in the 1830s is copper ore that's been mined for British industrialists, for copper smelters in South Wales. So there's a very clear relationship between what's going on in Cuba and the use of slave labour and the industrialisation of Britain. Would I be right to assume that the conditions for the slaves in these places was just as bad as one might imagine or because of the fact that the abolition movement had affected some changes were the conditions of the slaves better than they had been in the previous century for instance? Well that of course is what the mining companies claimed that it's better to be owned by a British mining company than by a local master. That said we do have some testimony of people who visited mines or people who worked at them as British mining specialists and their diaries and their letters make very clear that the treatment of slaves was in line with what was usual in these kind of slave societies. That's to say it was cruel, it was based upon violence and was fairly merciless. Okay, so how did this all end? What was it that finally brought this situation to a close? Well, what brings it all to a close is not the actions of abolitionists in Britain or the actions of the British Parliament, unfortunately. It's mainly what's going on locally in Cuba and Brazil. In Cuba, the use of slave miners at El Cobre ends in the 1860s, towards the end of the 1860s, but that's really because the mines have become uneconomic and are closing down. In Brazil, the use of slave miners by British companies continues for another generation, down to the end of the 1880s, and slave mining ends there, only with the emancipation of slaves in the Empire of Brazil as a whole, That final emancipation there comes in 1888. Finally then, what does this story 
tell us about the idea of corporate responsibility? Because it kind of informs us about a subject that's still relevant today, doesn't it? Oh, it does indeed. I mean, it raises big questions about ethical investment. If we look at the world today where people are concerned about, well, if I own shares, what are the companies in whom I own shares doing? What are they up to that I don't know about? I mean, that was an issue that first starts to emerge in this connection in the 1840s. Quite clearly, there are people who invest in these mining companies who weren't aware that they were slave using. It raises the question as well of what are the limits to the power of the state? How far can the state control what its citizens do, even when they're operating overseas? Are there crimes that are committed by citizens that should be punished wherever they happen, whatever the limits of jurisdiction are? That's a problem that remains of us today, and one we're still grappling with in the case of pariah crimes like sex tourism. And the principle that the abolitionists tried to introduce in the 1840s, the principle that it didn't matter where you were in the world, if you're a British citizen, a British subject, there were things you shouldn't do. Well, that's been revived in British law really quite recently to address the problems of sex tourism. That was Professor Chris Evans of the University of Glamorgan. His book, Slave Whales, The Welsh and Atlantic Slavery, 1660 to 1850, is published by University of Wales Press. BBC History magazine is published every four weeks in the UK and costs £3.95. Look out for it in your local newsagent or supermarket or take advantage of one of our great subscription deals, whether you're in the UK or overseas. Details are in the magazine and on our website at historyextra.com. The magazine is also published digitally, so please go to historyextra.com forward slash digital for information on that. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And just as a final reminder, we have our survey running on our website at www.historyextra.com forward slash survey. We'd really like your thoughts. Well, that's it for this episode. Next month, we'll attempt to find the lost Roman legion of the 9th. We'll hear about the debacle of the Bay of Pigs and we'll be investigating the history of theatre in Britain.